Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. The grass withers and the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, it remains forever. So let us give our attention to the reading of it. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And was and what was the what God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Uh, So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing uh, on our time in it. Our gracious and our merciful God, we know that you are great and you are greatly to be praised. And we long to know you and your attributes, your character and your works. And it's these that you have recorded for us in your word. It's these that you have preserved through the ages so that each generation might come afresh to your word. And behold your grace, your love and your power. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes and that you would open our hearts so that we might behold its treasures. Allow us, we ask, the privilege to gaze upon your beauty and splendor. Humble us, encourage us, and strengthen us. In Jesus Christ, we ask, for it is he who we meet in your word. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. I don't know if you've noticed it, uh, but there's a growing trend in, in movies and TV shows uh, these days that I find concerning. Uh, it seems more and more common that when a young man uh, professes his faith, I not his faith, his love for a young woman, he's more and more saying something like this, you know, uh, when I'm with you, I feel great about myself. <laughs> Or, you make me believe in myself. Or, when I'm around you, life is just great and I'm happier than I have ever been. No, don't get me wrong. It's, it's nice to feel good about yourself. It's nice to be happy. And I am certainly not encouraging young people to go out and find someone who makes you feel absolutely miserable. Uh, but we do have to ask, 
Uh, who's in focus in statements like those? Uh, they're not saying, I love you because you are amazing and you are kind and you are funny uh, and caring, but because you make me feel amazing and funny and kind and caring. Uh, and there is just something desperately wrong with saying, my favorite thing about you is me. <laughs> Want to get married? Um, And yet you hear it more and more. But here's the thing. Love, actual love, is not self-centered. Actual love is not self-absorbed. Actual love is not self-serving. Love cares about others. Love devotes itself to others. Love sacrifices for others. Love endures hardship for others. And the book of Malachi that we've been studying these last uh, few weeks is about love. Uh, the, The book of Malachi asks two big questions. Does God really love Israel? And does Israel really love God? But it's all about love. And that first question, does God love Israel, was answered in the opening verses of the book. And God uh, essentially says something like this. Well, if I loved you, I'd call you to be my own. And I'd stand between you and danger, and I would protect you uh, from your enemies. Is that not what I have done since the beginning? Of course I love you. But then... God turns with the second question and asks Israel if she has loved him. You remember Jesus' words, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And this is essentially the same thing that's being stated through the rest of the book. First, God says, well, if the leaders, if the priests actually loved me, if they really loved me, then they would guard my house And my altar from being defiled with unacceptable worship. And then he says that, oh, that there would be one among you who would be willing to stand up and barricade those doors, shut those doors, so that no more unacceptable sacrifices and worship would be allowed to enter into my house. Then he took aim at their teaching and he says basically this. If the priests really loved me, they would guard their lips from air. And they would preach the truth. And they would embody the truth. They would serve the people they lead and not themselves. They would live sacrificially. If leaders really love me, they will live sacrificial lives of service. Now as we we get to the middle of chapter 2, he turns his attention uh, from the leaders to the people themselves. Do they really love God? That's the question that's going to occupy the next few passages. And he starts with their marriages. Our marriages, beloved, are, are very important to God. Because marriage is about love. Um, 
It's about love for God, and marriage is about love for your spouse. And I do mean actual love, not self-centered, self-absorbed, self-serving imposters of love. And so how you approach marriage uh, reflects what you think about God and whether or not you love Him. How you approach marriage reflects what you think about God and whether or not you really love Him. As we look at this passage this morning, this is what it says. If you love God, you will marry a Christian and you will remain faithful to your marriage vows. If you love God, you will marry a Christian and you will remain faithful to your marriage vows. And that's what we want to unpack. And to do that, I'd first like to spend a few minutes talking about the fact that God does care deeply about marriage and why. And then we're going to see, that will enable us to see why God requires faithfulness in marriage, faithfulness both to him and to your spouse. And we'll talk about what that means. And then we'll close by seeing how the way we treat marriage affects our relationship with God and that God always comes to the aid of the victim. God always sides with the victim. So that's what we're going to look at as we look at this uh, very heavy but beautiful passage in the book of Malachi. So let's talk about that first thing. Why does God care deeply about marriage? Why does this matter so much to him? Why, as he turns from the leaders of the church and he turns to the people, why is the first thing that he addresses their marriages? Well, the reason is simple. God gave us marriage. Pastor Isaac just talked about how he cares about the Sabbath because God gave us the Sabbath. And Pastor Isaac said those, that, that what we do with somebody's gifts reflect what we think about the one who gave the gift. Same thing is true with marriage. God cares about what we do with the gifts he gives us. And I mean more than simply that that he gave us marriage like he gives us trees and he gives us water. Uh, That's true, of course, that all of God's gifts are to be handled well and with wise stewardship. But look at verses 14 and 15. God says he was a witness at your wedding. He, He listened to the vows you took as you committed yourself to your spouse. But it's more than that. Look at verse 15. It says, And he actually, by his Holy Spirit, united you in marriage. And so marriage is not like a vague general gift. Like he gives us the rain, and he gives us the beaches, and he gives us mountains. It is a unique, special gift that God is intimately involved with in weddings, actively participating in and witnessing your vows. And so that's why you hear in a a wedding something like this. Before God and these witnesses, do you take this woman to be your wife? Before God, do you? The Bible says it's better not to vow than to vow and break your promise. So God takes those vows seriously and he holds people to them. That's the first reason he cares about marriage is because... It's his gift to you. And the second reason he cares about marriage is because he gave it to us to teach us about his love for us. 
God didn't look at our marriage and say, oh, I, I didn't think of this before today, but, but I can use this to teach you about my love for you. God gave us marriage in order to teach us about him. When he said it's not good for a man to be alone, but I will make a helper suitable for him, his goal was to teach us about himself through that marriage. God has consistently described his relationship with us as one of marriage. He, He found Israel like a young maiden, and he took her to himself. And he gave her a home, and he, he provided for her, and he protected her, and, and he gave her a family and descendants. When he opened Malachi and said, I have loved you, and I have guarded you from the Edomites. I've stood between you and danger, and I will do so as often as I need to. What God is saying is, I have been a faithful husband to you, O Israel. God's story with his people is a beautiful love story. And that love story comes to a climax 2,000 years ago when, when God, in his love, took on flesh and blood to walk among us. And he didn't come for date night. He didn't come for a romantic stroll. He came to rescue his bride from danger, from her enemy, And ultimately from herself. He came to serve her knowing that doing so would cost him everything, even his own life. And so Jesus came and he gave himself wholly to the church. And he cherished her. He was faithful and he was kind and he was generous. And he wasn't interested in what he had to gain. He he didn't come and say, when I'm with you, I just feel so amazing about myself. He didn't love her because it was easy. And the love that Jesus has shown for us, his church, is the greatest example of devotion and selflessness history has ever seen. And if we're honest... we will admit that he had every reason in the world to abandon us. Because we've been unfaithful. We have been self-serving. We have even attacked him and blamed him for the problems we created. His love absolutely defies logic and reason. And yet he would not let us go because he was bent, determined, and unyielding in his intention of rescuing us at any cost. Sacrificial doesn't begin to describe the way he has loved us. He has suffered on our behalf the greatest violence this world has ever seen. In order to save us, he endured ridicule, mockery, false trials, false accusations, and shame. He endured assault, and he endured torture, and ultimately, murder for us. And 
all that he endured was driven by love. Because there was only one way to rescue us. And so he was willing to do whatever it took. That is what love looks like to God. That's what he means when he talks to us about love. That's the model. That's the standard that he holds up to us when he calls us to love each other. He says, this is what I'm talking about. As I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. Husbands, as as Christ has loved the church, so you are to love your wives. That's what marriage is to God. And so marriage is, is God's gift to us, and he uses it to teach us about his love for us. And because of these two things, because it's his gift and it's his gift to teach us about him and his love, because of those things, he takes it seriously. He cares about it. And so what people do with marriage can't be separated from what they think about God who gave us marriage. How you treat someone's gift always reflects what you think about the person who gave you that gift. And so if you love God, you will honor his intentions for marriage. Wives, if you love Jesus, you will honor your husbands. Husbands, If you love him, you will cherish your wives. And honoring marriage includes many things. Our passage focuses on two. Faithfulness to God and faithfulness to your spouse. God requires faithfulness in marriage to him... And to your spouse. Faithfulness to God in marriage means only marrying a Christian. That's what verse 11 is about. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign god. This is what Paul is reflecting on when he says, uh, you, are the, you are the temple of the Holy God, shall I? You take his sanctuary and unite it to a false god. He's reflecting upon this. And I'm talking right now especially to the young people here. Sometime in the not too distant future, you'll be deciding on whether uh, you're going to marry someone or not. And according to God, the absolute most important thing you are to look for is a heart that loves God. Now I know, I know, that sounds so narrow and archaic. After all, doesn't the heart want what the heart wants? Yes, and you can't trust your heart. God says it matters. So you say, but what if, what if this person I meet you know, respects my faith and encourages my faith and, and, and supports me going to church? 
doesn't matter. That's not the command. It comes down to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God demands to be first in your heart, chief among your affections. If God is truly the most important thing to you, if he is the most important thing to you, the most attractive thing in someone else will be that person's love for God. If there is something else more attractive than that, then that something is the most important thing in your heart. And it has pushed God out. A desire to marry a non-Christian demonstrates a heart that has already wandered. And so one of the most repeated commands in all of Scripture is against marrying a non-believer. And story after story in the Bible shows hearts being led astray by those who ignore this command. Beloved, this is not advice. This is not a recommendation. This is not a guideline. This is an explicit and often repeated command. It is rebellion against God to marry a non-Christian. This is why Malachi begins with, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us all? When he says created, it's like we saw recently in the Psalms. He's not talking about creation. He's talking about when he made Israel a new creation. He's saying, has God not called us out of the world, out of darkness and into the light? We are no longer part of the world. To go back to the world, to choose a husband or a wife, is to reject God as Father, to reject God as Savior. It means more, so much more than simply asking, does this person say he or she is a Christian? Because if God is not first in his or her heart... If that person does not encourage your faith, confront your sin, and push you toward Jesus, do not, do not, do not marry that person. Because faithfulness to God means putting Him first when you choose who you will marry. Because marriage is His gift, it's meant to be a reflection of His love. How could it be any other way? I realize I am being emphatically clear. That's because God's word is emphatically clear. I realize that there are some here who married non-Christians and have grieved over that decision. I know there are some who have come to faith after they were married. I've been at this point trying to address those who still have the option. But what about those who find themselves on the other side? What do I do? Well, first of all, you need to know the Lord's forgiveness, the Lord's mercy and His grace. And that when we come and we confess our sin, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sin to wash us as white as snow. We need to know his instructions. 
that in the midst of that, to be faithful to that marriage and to be a reflection. The Lord's instructions are to honor your spouse and remain married if your spouse is willing. There is mercy and there is grace. There is forgiveness. My goal here is not to miss that or lose sight of that. Absolutely not. But it's to underscore God's commands for those who still have the chance to make that decision. That's the first thing faithfulness in marriage means. Choosing someone who loves the Lord. The second thing it means is faithfulness to your marriage vows. That's what verses 15 and 16 are getting at. Uh, Verse 16 is a well-known and often quoted but hard-to-translate verse. Uh, The New American Standard follows the King James and translates it, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Maybe you've heard that before. That's pretty different from what we have in the ESV for the man who does not love his wife or the man who hates his wife but divorces her. I think the ESV is a better translation. Uh, It's true that God hates divorce. That's absolutely true. But what he is addressing here is an ancient practice where all it took to divorce a wife was for a man to say, I no longer love my wife or I hate my wife and I am divorcing her and sending her away. That was the only grounds necessary in the ancient world to divorce. And it appears that Israel was following their neighbors and they were doing the exact same thing in order to marry these foreign women. They were saying, I no longer love the wife of my youth. I'm going to divorce her and I'm going to marry this foreigner. And they divorced their wives. In other words, what Malachi is confronting here is unbiblical divorce. Now, while all divorce results from sin, not all divorce is sinful. There's a difference there. God is the one who gave us divorce in order to protect victims. Divorce is a refuge for those who have been betrayed in marriage. And we're not free to decide what that betrayal is, what qualifies as betrayal. God has given us two very specific answers. Uh, The first is adultery. If someone commits adultery, they have broken the marriage covenant and they have forfeited the right to that marriage. The betrayed person, the victim, is free to leave that marriage. But there's another way to break the marriage covenant. Men especially were required to do three things for their wives. Uh, Provide food, protection, and marital rights so that they could have children. A husband who failed on any count, uh, his wife was free to divorce him and keep the bride price that he had given her father. Now, this is a pattern, a habit that has fallen out, but as a father of four daughters, I think it's a great idea. Um, giving money to the dad first, that, that idea. Uh, but a husband who, who refuses to work, which is different than being incapable of working. A husband who refuses to work has abandoned his wife. 
Uh, A husband who abuses his wife, who fails to protect her, has abandoned her. A husband who refuses intimacy has abandoned her. Each of these constitutes grounds for a lawful divorce. What Malachi is addressing is a divorce without biblical grounds. Someone who simply decides he doesn't love his wife anymore and divorces her has done violence against her, verse 16. God sees this as an assault on the wife and on the marriage vows that God witnessed and blessed. The same would be true for a a wife who, who decides that she doesn't love her husband anymore and divorces him. Marriage is meant to reflect God's love and his faithfulness. And an assault on marriage is an assault on God. Jesus didn't do violence to his bride. He endured violence for her. He provided for her. He protected her. He gave himself wholly to her. Because marriage is costly. It's meant to reflect the cross of Jesus. And it's where we learn to love as we have been loved. And God will not ignore the one who with God as his witness enters into marriage and then abandons it for convenience, for happiness, for fulfillment, for ease, for self-service. God sees and he always sides with the victim. And that helps us to see what's going on in verses 12 through 15. God rejects the worship and offerings of the one who marries a non-Christian or who has an unbiblical divorce. Verse 12, I'm no longer accepting your offerings and your worship. He says in verse 13 that he knows what they will do. They'll come and they'll weep at the Lord's altar because he has rejected them and refused to accept their offerings. They'll act confused, verse 14, and say, why, why does he reject us? And then God says, because I was at your wedding. I witnessed your vows. But you have abandoned your covenant and you have abandoned your wife. And now I will abandon you the way you abandoned her. That's why. Unlawful divorce isn't just an assault on the betrayed spouse. It's an assault on God. This is what Jesus meant when he said, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Husbands. You need to hear this particularly well. Your wives are to be cherished, cared for, and treated tenderly. Reflecting on this passage, Peter said, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands who are abusive and overbearing need to hear this. God does not hear your prayers and he rejects your worship. Our church 
has in the past and will continue to do so. It will stand between women and their abusive husbands. Anything less would be an affront to God's character. And we would be joining in the violence done to the wife. When verse 12 says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any man or any descendant of the man who does this. It's talking about cutting people off from the people of God. He's talking about church discipline. The church has become far too comfortable with turning a blind eye to violence done against marriage. Oh, they have irreconcilable differences, the church says. Oh, it's no one's fault. They just fell out of love. The one who sees marriage that way doesn't understand God because God cares. If you marry someone he has forbidden, if you divorce someone unlawfully, if you are overbearing and abusive, you have set your heart against God and he demands that the church address it. This goes back to what we saw in chapter 1 and God's expectation for leaders in the church to guard the doors of the church lest sin be allowed to come in and corrupt God's house. These are are heavy statements. These are sobering realities. And I think there's a danger here of seeing these passage, or this passage in, in only a negative way. And, and to be sure there are rebukes, be, to be sure the warnings are heavy. But the emphasis that we should close with is the faithfulness and the love of God. Look at verses 15 and 16 one more time. These calls to faithfulness draw us back to the previous verse. Marriage is a gift from God. He was there. It's meant to reflect his love to us. When we think about marriage, we should think about the God who loved us and called us out of the world. The God who provides for all of our needs and protects us from our enemies. The God who has promised to always be faithful and to never leave or forsake us. When we understand that love, when we see his devotion for what it really is, when we see how he has loved us, how could we do anything else but reflect that love to our husband or our wife? How could we want anything else but to enter into such a union only with someone who is captivated with such love? How could we ever allow selfishness to corrupt such a gift and and to turn it into something that we take lightly? Marriage is an opportunity for the faithfulness we have been shown, the love we have been shown to be reflected to the spouse that God has given us. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful gift. It's a high calling. 
And it's something we are not up to and adequate to in ourselves. We need God's strength. We need his faithfulness. And, and the sacraments are, are wonderfully uh, meant to keep God's faithfulness ever before us. And, and sacraments are signs, that's, that's pictures of the violence that Jesus suffered for our sake as our faithful uh, husband. But sacraments are also seals, which means they're God's pledge affixed to his promise, to his word, binding him to keep it. And we have two of those this morning, two reminders of God's faithfulness. Baptism is a promise that all who believe in Jesus will be saved. Uh, Our children receive it in infancy as a promise to them that if they place their hope in Jesus and not themselves, that they will be saved. It's interesting that our catechism even invokes marriage imagery uh, from the Bible when it says that baptism is an engagement of sorts uh, to, to be the Lord's. It's a promise meant to lead to marriage. Short of Catechism 94. And today, God is telling Tennyson that his eternal hope is in Jesus Christ who endured violence for his bride. And it serves as a promise to Tennyson that if he trusts in Jesus, he will one day be in heaven. It's a wonderful reminder. A wonderful promise. Uh, Right after the baptism, we're going to have the Lord's Supper, a second sacrament. And the Lord's Supper is meant for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They are no longer engaged, but married. It's a reminder that Jesus has provided for his bride, that he laid his life down for her. And as such, the Lord's Supper anticipates the great wedding supper of the Lamb when we get to heaven. And so the Lord's Supper is a weekly reminder for us that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that he will never leave nor forsake his bride, the church. And so our hope of faithfulness in this world and in our marriages begins with Jesus who has first been faithful to us. And so let us come and partake and find our comfort in the Lord and let us draw upon him and upon his strength that we might in turn be faithful to one another. So first, I'd like to invite the Montes up uh, and the elders and Pastor Isaac as well. We've been here before, you know the questions that are coming, but I invite you to uh, reaffirm on Tennyson's behalf um, your commitment uh, as we come to the, to the baptism today. Uh, Charlie and Sarah, do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to condemnation, that they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace and as children of the covenant are to be baptized? And you promise to teach diligently to Tennyson the principles of our holy, scripture, our holy Christian faith revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms of this church. We do. And do you promise to pray regularly with and for Tennyson and to set an example of piety and godliness before him? We do. And do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed 
to bring Tennyson up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, encouraging him to appropriate for himself the blessings and fulfill the obligations of the covenant. We do. He looks just like a Montes. It's like a little... Uh, it's a little, like a little time warp here. Copy and paste. Copy and paste. So wonderful. Tennyson Charles Montes, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, it's not just marriage that is a wonderful gift and sober obligation, but parenting is as well. You are the perfect Father, and you have loved us perfectly. And so we pray for Charlie and Sarah as they seek to guide young Tennyson in the days, the weeks, the months, and years ahead. May they first be completely intoxicated by your fatherly love and discipline, your care and your instruction. And then may they, in turn, show that to their son. We pray for Finn and Ellie and James as well, that they would be helpful siblings and mutual recipients of that love and guidance and instruction. And Father, may we one day have the unique privilege of watching Tennyson go from engagement to marriage as he professes his faith and claims Jesus as his own. May he never remember a day when you were not first in his heart, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.